This week, last week we started this underdog series, and we're talking about uh, different underdogs from, uh, from the Bible. And uh, the Bible is full of underdogs. It's full of people who in, in the beginning or at some point at, in time look like that, you know, maybe God was done with them or that there was no way that God could possibly use them or, or somebody that, that just looked like, you know, that they, they didn't have it all together or that they had made such a huge mistake that, that it was done, it was over. They would never be used by God again or that they would never uh, amount to anything. But one thing that we know about the Bible is from Genesis through Revelation, the Bible is full of underdogs that God takes and uses despite their mistakes, despite their past, despite all of the things that could possibly hold someone back, we see this in Scripture, all throughout Scripture. And the good news about that is, is that our God is the God of the underdogs because God takes people who look like that they don't have it together. He takes broken, messed up things broken bodies and, and people, and, and he does amazing things through them. And so that's what we're talking about in this, this uh, series called Underdogs. And I, w- what I love most about underdogs, is, and especially in the Bible, is, is the comeback stories. You know what I'm talking about? Like the, the, the comeback stories, the ones that, that look like, you know, it was going pretty good for a little while, then all of a sudden it just went downhill. You know, because of a mistake that somebody made or, or something, something that happened, or a situation, a circumstance. And, and it's these comeback stories that I, that I really love. And so in Scripture, we see these comeback stories over and over and over and over again. You have Adam, for example. Adam, the, the first man, our, our, our first earthly father, basically. Adam was, he's a comeback story. He's, he's uh, because God took and made this man Adam, and then Adam, the fall happens in Genesis 3. Adam sins. Adam and Eve both sin, and sin enters into the world, but yet God still takes this man Adam and brings forth through him a people. And that people in the beginning, it's how we ended up here, right? And so you have, you have a man like Adam, you have, uh, you have a, a, a man like Noah, right? We, we know the story of Noah, and, and a lot of times all we really think about is, is Noah, and we think about Noah's ark and, and how God used Noah to do that, but we forget the fact that Noah was a drunk. He was a drunk, but yet God, still, God knew that. God still chose to use Noah. And then you have a man, uh, Abraham, right? Abraham, who, you know, every time you say Abraham, but you just want to do the song, right? You know, you want to do Abraham. Okay, anyway. So Abraham, right? Abraham, you've got Abraham. And and with Abraham, God takes this man uh, who is first known as Abram, and then he tells Abraham, I'm going to send you to a place that I will show you, and I will make you the father of many nations. But yet Abraham, even in when God told him what he was going to use him for, Abraham still at times disobeyed God. But yet God still chose to use Abraham. And then you have Moses, right? We love we love talking about Moses. Moses is one of my one of my favorite leaders in all of uh, Scripture. He's one of my favorite uh, men in all of the Bible. But but Moses was a man who had doubts about how God wanted to use him. Moses, when, when God first calls Moses into action, Moses, his response is, you got the wrong guy. There's no way that you could possibly use me. I've got a speech impediment. They'll never listen to me. But God says, I will speak and put the words in your mouth for you. And so he uses a man like Moses. But yet, even Moses 
at times was disobedient to God, but yet God still chose to use Moses. And then you have uh, a woman like Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. She was a prostitute. She was a lady of the streets, right? Like, I mean, she was, she was uh, somebody that you, like today if you said, man, God's going to take a prostitute off the streets and radically use her for his glory. And most of us would be like, what? You mean she didn't grow up in church? What's that about? But yet, through Rahab would come Jesus. God used a prostitute for his honor and for his glory. And then you have people like Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate comeback story, isn't he? He's the ultimate underdog. Jesus was, he was the underdog. He is the comeback story because Jesus was, when he comes onto the scene, you have one group of people who are ready for Jesus to start a revolution, to to start a war and to overthrow the Roman government. But Jesus said, I didn't come to start that kind of revolution. I came to start a revolution, don't get me wrong, but it ain't that kind of revolution. And he even told them, he said, I will be killed But I will rise again on the third day. And most of the people, they didn't believe him. In fact, the people that were closest to him, when Jesus was put into that tomb, many of them decided that they were not going to continue to follow anymore. In fact, Peter, one of his closest disciples said, I'm going fishing. I'm out. I'm going back to the nets. But Jesus, because he is the ultimate comeback, Jesus made good on his promise, didn't he? He comes back, rises again, Jesus is alive, ultimate comeback story. You have men like David in the Old Testament. David, we talked about David last week. David was, David is a, is a great example of, a, of an underdog and a, and a comeback story because God takes a little scrawny teenager, David, anoints him as king, uses him to set a whole nation free, but then later on as David is king, he becomes a, an adulterer, he becomes a murderer, he becomes a liar. But yet, God still says about David, this is a man after my own heart. He is a friend of mine. God still chooses to use a mess up like David. And you have Peter, right? Peter in the New Testament, one of Jesus' closest disciples and, and, and apostles, right? Peter is a, is a guy who, again, when Jesus is put into the tomb, he's like, I'm out, I'm done, I'm going back fishing. I guess this Jesus wasn't really who he said he was. And so he's one step away from going back to what he came from. But then when Jesus returns, changes the whole story. And Peter, Peter was a man who even denied even knowing Jesus. When they arrested Jesus and they were about to crucify Jesus, and you know, you know the story, the little middle school girl comes up to, to Peter and is like, hey, I saw you with that Jesus guy. And he's like, no, 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 it wasn't me. You got the wrong guy. But then there's this guy, Paul. Paul is uh, probably one of the most prominent comeback stories in all of Scripture. The Apostle Paul. Now, Paul, understand this. Paul was not a disciple. He was not one of the original 12, all right? Paul was an apostle. As a matter of fact, Jesus was uh, crucified somewhere in 32, 33, uh, around, around that time. And then Paul, actually, we find out about Paul, sort of comes onto the scene around 30 years after that, okay? And so Paul... Uh, Paul was not with Jesus, walking with Jesus, but Paul knew about Jesus because Paul's job, in fact, let's back up just a second. Before Paul became Paul, Paul was Saul. 
put that, like, get that, get that around your head, right? Like, his name was not even Paul, it was Saul, with an S, right? And his job was to murder Christians. His job was to stomp out this radical movement of believers and Christ followers from spreading throughout the, the region. And so Paul was, he was the um, he was the, the, one of the leaders, he was a zealot, so he was one of the leaders of this, this movement to stomp out Christians and believers as Saul. But something happens to him. He is radically changed and saved by Jesus. And his whole story flips upside down. His whole life changes. The whole direction of everything in his world changes. And the reason why I love this story so much is because I think that a lot of us can relate to Paul. Because there are some of us who find ourselves or who we have found ourselves in places and we look at our lives and we say, I am ashamed of my past. I regret my past. I regret what I've done. I regret, I, I regret what I've said. And I find myself in a place that I just don't want to be in. But here I am. So what, what, what happens next? What do I do? Where do I, where do I go? God's, God can't do anything with this. God can't do anything with me. God can't take this brokenness inside of me. He can't take all of this junk that I carry around, all this baggage, all of this past. He can't do anything with this. Now imagine, imagine Paul for a second. There was, there was never a day in Paul's life before he met Jesus that he ever thought that he would be doing for God what he ended up doing for God. Never. And maybe that's you too. Maybe, maybe you think about that too because of, uh, of whatever in the past, what your, your past, your mistakes, your sin, all of these things. Because of these things, you think, you know what? At best, I'll attend church every now and then. That's, that's about as good as it's going to get for me. That's it. See, I, 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 know what that, I, I know that story because that's my story. I understand that story because that's, that's where I've been. That's, that's myself. There, there was a, a moment for me in my life where I, I literally thought that, that sitting in a, in a seat somewhere in an obscure church, somewhere where I could hide out in the back, sing a few songs, leave a little early before anybody could say hi to me, you know, that kind of thing, I thought at best that would be me. At best. But God had other plans, as he does for most of us. And I, and I think that, that if we can see ourselves in Paul, if we can see, see how God took a man by the name of Saul, changed his name, and changed his story, I think that you and I could all see that God can take our brokenness, our sin, our past, our mistakes, all of those things, and turn it into a platform. Because what God does with Paul is he takes his past, and makes it his platform. So I want you to check this out. I want you to see what happens to Paul. Turn to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. I just want to read you a couple of verses here real quick because um, I want you to see Paul's story. I want you to see what Paul experienced because uh, in, in this, Paul, he tells of his story. He tells what, what happened to him. And he, and he says, this was me then and this is me now. So check this out. 
Acts 26, starting in verse 12. Paul says this, he says, In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. So what he's saying is, he's, he's saying, I was on my way to carry out my job, which was to have Christians thrown into jail or murdered. So on his way to have Christians murdered, this is what happened. At midday, O king, he, he's telling this to a, to a king, by the way. He says, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, that, that, that phrase, kick against uh, the goads, uh, uh, that, that phrase is interesting because in the original language, what that phrase basically means is Jesus is saying, you can't escape this. This is going to happen. Like, you ain't, you, you're not getting away from this. Like, this, this is predestined. This is ordained. Like, this, what is about to happen right now, you're not, you, you can't hide anymore. You will not be able to kick against this. You will not be able to resist the will of God. Go, go on. He says this in verse 15. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And so imagine this. Paul is on his way to persecute, kill, throw into jail Christians. This great light shows up, blinds him, knocks him off his horse or his donkey or his camel, whatever he's on, right? And he's, he's on the ground, and this voice comes through the light and says, why are you persecuting me? The voice of Jesus asking Paul this question. Now, I love what Jesus says next, verse 16. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to anoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering, from, uh, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Now, I love what Jesus says there. He says, rise and stand on your feet. Now, think about this for a second. Think about everything that this man has experienced. Think about, think of what, think about what is going through his mind at this point. Because at this point, I imagine that, that Saul, who is experiencing this, is thinking about everything that he has done in his past. He's thinking about every Christian he had had put to death for even speaking the name of Jesus. He is thinking about all the vile things, all the horrible things, all the broken things, all of the sin. He has, th he has thought about that, when, but Jesus says this. He says, it's time to move on from that. It's time for you to get up on your feet and to go to where I'm sending you. And I love that because I feel like that that, for some of you here today, that's the the voice of God speaking those words to you, telling you, you are, no, you are no longer a slave to your past. You are no longer a slave to sin that holds you. You are no longer a slave to the brokenness. You are no longer a slave to something that is going to keep you from doing what I am sending you to do. Rise and stand upon your feet. And go to the place where I'm sending you. And the story of Paul is that Paul 
Paul does just that. He, he, he rises and stands upon his feet. And Paul, listen, Paul, uh, Saul, Saul's past is so bad. Like, it's not, he doesn't just show up in places and people are like, hey, who's the guy standing in the back with the coffee? Like, when he would show up to places where there were Christians, people ran. They knew who this guy was. His name traveled far and wide. He, and so, in other words, he had a reputation. Does that sound familiar to anybody? He had a reputation. And his reputation was not good. His reputation was not the reputation. Like, when he showed up in a church, people knew who this guy was. You know what I'm saying? Like, like they, they saw him and they were like, wait, wait, okay, who invited the murderer? Seriously, who, who, who invited the axe murderer? Come on. They knew who this guy was. And so here's, here's what Jesus does. He takes Saul and he changes his name to Paul. Not because when he shows up and they're like, hey, aren't you Saul? He's like, no, 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 not me. I'm Paul. Twin brother, you know. Like, it wasn't because of that. Like, he didn't change his name to, to Paul so, so that he could do that. He changed his name to Paul so that everyone could see a visible change in his life where he said, Saul was who I used to be, but Paul is who I am now in Christ Jesus. I am no longer that guy because I have been radically changed and saved by the blood of Christ. And so this same guy with this reputation he, he writes most of the New Testament. In, in your Bible, most of the New Testament, Acts all the way through Revelation, most of the, the letters that we read in, in the New Testament were written by this man, Paul, to churches in different regions. He became a missionary, meaning that he traveled throughout the region, planting churches, raising up leaders, raising up elders, raising up pastors, and then setting them on their feet and setting them on their way, and he would move on to the next, to the next place. All the time, proclaiming the name of Jesus. But here's what Paul did not do. Paul did not show up in a place, and, and when they said, hey, aren't you that guy that used to murder Christians? Paul didn't show up and say, I don't know, you got the wrong guy. That wasn't me. That wasn't me. He didn't run from his past. He actually took his past and he said, yes, that was me. That's not me anymore. And so he took his past and made his past his platform. And so if you're taking notes today and you're writing, you want to write down a bottom line, I want you to write this down. Because this is, this is true. And it doesn't matter what your circumstance is. It doesn't matter where you're at. But this, this will ring true for you. That God's power is always greater than your past. God's power will always be greater than your past. Because what Paul found out was that Paul's identity was not in his past. Paul's identity is in what Christ did on the cross. That's where Paul found his new identity. His, his identity used to be found in his past. And people wanted to look at Paul and, and try to pin his past onto his identity. But Paul took and lived in the power that God's power was greater than his past, and said, I am, my identity is not found in my past, but my identity is found in what Christ has done on the cross for me. And so with that said, Paul, in a letter to a church in a place called Corinth, Paul writes these words, some of the most powerful wor words in all of Scripture. But he writes this, 
In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he says this. Now remember, understand what his past was. Understand where he came from. Understand what he had been through. And with that same man, he writes these words. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if you highlight, underline, things like that in your Bible, underline that phrase, in Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Thank you. He says, he says, behold, the new has come. So therefore, if anyone is in Christ, do you understand what that means? Do you understand what that means for you? If you're a believer, if you're in Christ, that means that whatever your past was, whatever your mistake was, whatever your sin was, that in Christ, you are something new, that the old has passed, like the, the past is no longer there. The past is gone. It's covered in the blood of Christ. It's been forgiven. But the problem is, is what we like to do is we just like to drag our past with us, don't we? It's like it just never leaves. It's just like, it, it's, just like it's always with us. It's just like it's always there. It's always just raising up its ugly head, isn't it? But what Paul shows us is that Paul shows us that we can actually take our past and make our past a platform instead of just constantly trying to run from our past. So, a couple things. Check this out. A couple things that I want to show you. If you write notes, you you can write these down. The first thing is this, that in Christ, you are completely forgiven. In Christ, you are completely forgiven. Have you ever felt like that God forgives others, but he doesn't really forgive you? You ever felt like that? I know, I, I know I've kind of felt like that before. Like I, I kind of look at other people's stories and I, I've kind of looked at other people and been like, man, that's so good. I'm so glad. Like, you know, I hear these, these amazing stories of, of people who, who have come out of just some amazing circumstances and some huge, huge, just amazing earthly mistakes. Understand that God looks at all mistakes and sin exactly the same. We just, look, we as humans look at it differently. But, you know, some amazing things that they've come out of and they're just proclaiming God's glory through those uh, sins and mistakes, right? And then I look at that and I'm like, that's so good. I'm so glad that God has forgiven them. But then I look at myself sometimes and I go, but I, man, I just don't feel like that God has forgiven me. But what we learn here in 2 Corinthians 5.17 is that in Christ, you and I are completely forgiven. Not just a little bit forgiven, not just partially forgiven, but we are completely forgiven. And here's why I know that you and I are completely forgiven in Christ. is because Jesus didn't partially die on a cross for part of our sins. Jesus died on the cross for every sin, all of our sins, not just the little sins, not just the sins that, that, you know, that we're okay with, all of our sins. It was a full death, but most importantly, it was a full resurrection. And so in Christ, we are completely forgiven. And so there, there are those times, though, that, that with our past, you know, maybe, maybe you run into somebody that you hadn't seen in a long time, you know? You know that whole thing? You run into somebody and you're like, like as soon as you see that person, like that past comes back. You know, 
and what it really is, or, or maybe it's a song that you hear, or it's a place that you pass, or something like that, and, and you kind of you, you get that old feeling, like that past starts to come back to you, that, that feeling, and it's the enemy who's coming back, and he, he's just pointing his finger at you and going, you, you remember that? You remember that? You ought to remember that. You were there. Paul, I think Paul, I think Paul knew that feeling. Paul had to know that feeling because when he would show up to a place and he would show up to a church and he would stand there proclaiming the glory of God and people would go, no, you that dude that used to kill people. And so with that mind, Paul, Paul writes this in Romans 8, 1, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those What's the phrase again? Who are in Christ Jesus. And that's not just one of those things that looks good on a coffee cup, people. That's, that's something that, that for our life is huge. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means for you as a believer, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are not condemned to your past. You are not condemned to your sin. You are not condemned to your mistakes. Because in Christ, you are completely forgiven. Second thing is this. In Christ, you are valued. In Christ, you are valued. How many of you ever lost something that was really valuable to you? You just, you know, okay, two people. So, all right, awesome. All right, thank you, thank you. There we go. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, more, more hands now, more hands. Wake up, let's go, come on. I, I had a... Uh, this happened to me just a couple months ago, back in the spring. I, I, my, I lost my wallet, and um, I was, uh, was with my family. We went out to eat, grabbed something to eat, and, and uh, if you've got kids, you know how this whole drill goes. You, like, you all, your hands are full, like, all the time. Like, you know, it doesn't matter how many pockets you have. You just, your hands are just always full with, like, a kid or a diaper bag or, you know, something, right? And so I'm, I, I've got two kids, and, you know, we're walking to the car, and I had my wallet in my hand because we, you know, paid for dinner or whatever, and I didn't put it in my pocket for some reason, and... And uh, so as I'm putting my kids in my car, maybe you do this, I do this all the time, I like to put stuff up on top of the car when I'm putting the kids in the car. Anybody else? Am I the only one? Like, we, we do that a lot, right? Yeah. So I, I, put, I, I put my wallet up on top of the car, right? And so I put the kids in the car, I get in the car, drive off, right, and get home. And later that night, you know, I'm, I'm sort of collecting everything that I need to get ready for the next day and, 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 you know, putting everything there on the table. So when I walk out the door, I can just grab it and go out the door. And so I always take my keys and my wallet and, and put it there. And so I'm looking for my wallet, and it's not in the typical place that I usually place my wallet. And so I'm thinking, okay, maybe I put it in my pants. And so, you know, you know the drill, right? You know how this goes. You know, so you start looking in your pants, and then you're like, what pants did I have on today? Like, you know, like, so you start looking through all your pants, right, and jacket pockets and everything else. And then so you go up back out to the car, and you're looking in the car, and you flipping everything upside down. And you think, well, maybe it fell, like, you know. So like an hour goes by, and I still can't find my wallet. And then it occurs to me, oh, no. I think I left my wallet on top of the car when we left the restaurant. And so, you know, I'm, I'm freaking out. 
you know, because I've lost my wallet. Like, everything is in my wallet. Men, you know, you know the feeling, right? Or ladies, you lose your purse. When you lose that, like, you flip out just a little bit, right? And so, like, I'm flipping out, and I'm looking for this thing everywhere. So here's what happens. It's about 11 o'clock at night. And so I'm like, I'm just not going to be able to sleep until I find my wallet. And so I get in the car and drive back to the restaurant, driving about 15 miles an hour down the road, looking for a black wallet on the side of the road. That's dumb, right? And so, like, I'm, I'm like, driving, I'm, like, you know, you know, telling people that, you know, just, like, you know, pass me, you know, and I'm, like, going through the whole thing. I go back to the parking lot. I spend about 20 minutes out in the parking lot. Two hours later, I get home, no wallet, no wallet. But I'm not giving up yet. Like, I'm still, like, I'm, like, I can find this thing. I'm going to go back. So the next day, I go back. And so I walk about two miles the next day along the sidewalk, along the route that I drove to get back home looking for my wallet thinking you know it's going to be over on the side somewhere you know it's black so nobody else probably found it it's you know going to be laying over there somewhere and so I walk down the road about two miles nothing I walk back on the other side two miles nothing couldn't find it ever you know and like some of you are like man it's just a wallet like just call and cancel your cards you know and all that stuff listen I didn't want to go back to the DMV I'm just telling you because (laughs) If you've ever lost your driver's license, you know what that's like. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, I, I, and I had to go back to the DMV, and it was the worst experience of my life, okay? And so I, I lost something immensely valuable to me. Now, listen, when you lose something valuable to you, you'll do whatever it takes to get it back, won't you? I mean, you'll lose sleep. You'll search high and low for it. I mean, you'll, you'll do whatever it takes. If it is immensely valuable to you, you will do whatever it takes to get it back. In Christ, you were valuable. And the reason why I know that in Christ you were valuable is because God did what needed to be done because of how valuable you are to him. And how valuable are you to him? You are valuable enough that he took his son, Jesus, and gave him up for your redemption. Meaning that he gave up his most prized possession. His only son gave him up to redeem us because of our past, because of our mistakes, because of our sins. Not just the little ones, but all of them. Jesus said himself that God so loved the world, right? That he what? That he gave. 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 Understand this. The value of something is always determined by how much somebody will pay for it. Think about that. The value of something is always determined by by what someone will pay for it. And so God valued us enough despite our past that he would give his son. In Christ, we are valued. In Christ, we are valued. Last thing is this. In Christ, you are loved. In Christ, you are loved. Not only about about you, but um, anybody else in here besides me, I'll be honest. I know we're in church. That's not what we do, but I'll be honest. Uh, 
Anybody, anybody else have a have a hard time loving some people? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah. Anybody? Don't point at them, okay? Because that would that would. Not, <laughs> I saw a few. I saw a few. Uh, you know, a few people going. But listen, there there are some people. There are some people that are hard to love. I, you know, I I know I know I'm, I'm I'm supposed to love everybody, but I'll just I'll just be honest with you. There are some people that I just have a hard time loving. You know, and I, and I don't know who it is for you. Maybe it's you know you know I don't, maybe it's somebody that you work with. Maybe you know maybe it's a family member. Maybe maybe you know it's it's just a certain kind of person. Like for me, I can't necessarily say well it's it's this person in particular. Like for me, I, I have I just be honest. I have a hard time really getting my arms around loving complainers. People that, negative nannies, you know, people like, you know, the world is always falling apart. Like, you know, just everything is just horrible. You know, we got a testifier back there. And like everything, you know, everything is just, you know, like just negativeness. You know, like I, I, I just be honest, I have a hard time. And if that's you, listen, I'm going to try my best to love you, okay? I'm just saying. But listen, like just, just negative. I mean, I just, I have a, I just, I have a hard time loving that type of person. You know, and, and, you know, honestly, there are other types of people that, that we have a hard time loving. You know, th- there are times, it, let's just all be honest here, if you're a parent, there are times that you look at your children and you're like, I love you so much. You know, you know, and you just like have to make yourself like, you know, like you, like you, not, 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 nothing that your kids could ever do could like, you know, ever really change that. But having the words actually come out of your mouth is just a little harder sometimes, right? Uh, I'll give you an example. Yesterday, my wife and I were in, in, in our, uh, we've got a four-year-old uh, boy and a, a two-year-old daughter, and, and we're sitting in the living room, and we're watching the, the Tennessee-Florida game, and, and um, we're huge Tennessee fans, and so we're watching this game, and the game is very close at this point. I think Tennessee was up 7 nothing at this point. If you watch the game, you, you kind of know how it turned out. Anyway, so uh, we're watching this game, and, and we, we've raised our children correctly. They will be Tennessee fans until the day that they die, okay? And so, like, this is... This this is just this is how, how we raise up our children. And so our son comes up, he's standing right behind me, and in something happened because he wasn't thinking. Because out of his mouth comes, Go Gators. <laughs> and I turned around and I looked at him and I said, What did you say? He said, Daddy, I'm 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 for the Gators. And I'm not, I'm not joking. My wife looked at him and she said, go to your room. <laughs> and she said, she said, you're supposed to say, go Vols. And he said, no, go Gators. And literally, she said, go to your room, like, now. <laughs> and he said, okay, go Vols, you know. So it was like, so it was like, Shh. You know, and so, but like, you know, sometimes you just, there, there are people sometimes you just, I mean, you know, we, we have a hard time loving them. And when my son, Isaiah, when he was first born, we had just started this church. And so there'd be a lot of times like I would be sitting and, and with the band would be playing, I'd be worshiping, you know, and I would be holding him in my arms, you know, because he was a newborn. And like literally every single time right before I got up to preach, he would upchuck on me. 
You know what I'm saying? You, you know that feeling like you get that hold, that warm feeling running down your neck, you know, and it's just like, oh, you know. Like he would do that every single time. And so literally for the first three months of this church, I got up to preach and I had a white stain like right here on my shoulder. Some of y'all just thought it was part of the shirt. But no, it was up chuck like every single Sunday right here, you know. And so every time that had happened, I, you know, you, you take them and you hold them like this, right? And you just kind of, you just kind of pass them off to, you know, whoever the next poor soul is next to you. But you just kind of like, you know. Here you go. And so I, you know, but here's, here's the thing about my kids, and you probably know this about your kids too, is that I don't, I don't love my kids because of what they've done. I love my kids because they're my kids. They're mine. I am their father. And I love them because they are mine. I love them not based on their performance, but based on their position as my children. Understand, in Christ, that God loves you, not based on what you have done, but based on who you are as his child, as his son, as his daughter. He loves you not based on your performance, but based on your position. And nothing could change that. Nothing could ever separate you from that. Paul, again, understands this completely. He writes this later on in Romans 8. He says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying there is absolutely nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. A few months ago, my daughter, she um, was asleep and late, you know, late at night. She she wakes up and she does this a lot. She'll wake up in the middle of the night and she'll just you know cry out for daddy, and she knows that daddy will come pick her up out of the bed. And and so I go and I you know we'll walk into her room and, and pick her up out of the bed. And and so this one particular night I go in there and I, and she's usually standing at the end of her bed, you know, waiting for me to pick her up. And she's not standing there this time. She's actually just sitting you know, there in the bed, but she's calling out for daddy, and so I go in, and, I, and I, I, typically I don't turn on the light, but for some reason I felt the need to turn on the light this time, and I'm so glad that I did. I turned the light on, and she's sitting there, and she is sitting in a pool of vomit. I mean, she is thrown up everywhere. It's all over her. It's in her hair. It's on her clothes. I think it's on the ceiling. Like, it's just, I mean, it's just like everywhere, everywhere. And she is sitting in her vomit and with her hands up in the air, and she's just going, Daddy, Daddy. And so I looked at her, and I said, clean yourself up. No, I didn't. <laughs> but that, listen, that's not, that's, that, that's not what I did. I didn't look at her and say, you're going to have to clean yourself up. You better go get a towel. You better go get yourself washed up before you want me to pick you up. That's not what I did. I reached down in her vomit and picked her up, and her mother and I cleaned her up. In Christ, you are unconditionally loved regardless of the mess that you're sitting in. God's power is greater than your mess. God's power is is bigger than your mess. God's power, listen, is greater than your past. Because in Christ, you are completely forgiven. You are valued. You are 
love. And so Paul, he doesn't minimize his past. Because a minimized past is a minimized platform. God, God took Paul in his past and used it for his platform.